This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Hello, this is Mike Dilk and thank you for joining me on the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. Today, I discuss the mind-body connection. When we look at brain scans about activity in the brain, it may surprise you that people who are experts and people who are performing well, their brains are less active. The frontal lobes have gotten out of the way. The instinctive brain plus all the training, you're just letting yourself do what you're good at without you sort of falling over your own feet. Dr. Rahul Jandial, he's a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist, and actually he's spoken a couple of weeks ago about pain and the perception of pain on the show, and will be appearing uh, in the future on other Relax Back UK shows. He is fantastically interesting and a delight to talk with, and I actually kind of forgot we were doing an interview. It felt like we were having a cup of tea in my kitchen, and the reason for that is because I find the topic fantastically interesting and he's just so good at explaining things. We explore how you can improve at almost anything, be it a physical or a mental endeavor with some brain training, some psychology, some positive thought, call it what you will, is a fantastically interesting guest. Now, who really dislikes driving? Many people find driving very uncomfortable, causing lots of back pain, particularly low back pain. Dr. Graham Cox has designed a gizmo to change all that, but better than all that, it makes driving just a lot safer. About 90% of us drive with um, slack in the seatbelt, which means that uh, our five-star crash-tested cars are little more than than two star um, if you've got more than an inch of slack in the lap belt, which is horrific and not many people know it. I chatted with Dr. Rahul Jandial about how believing in yourself and training, brain training in the right sort of way can have really dramatic results. Uh, but I started off by mentioning some advice I had in a past job. So I, I used to have a boss who used to tell me, Mike, just fake it till you make it. And that wasn't in sport endeavors. That was in, I don't know, just trying to make more sales or whatever it was in a, in a, a, work, a work environment. But I kind of like that and I, I try to take that on board and I sort of use it in lots of things that I, I get up to. Um, but do you think that's a, a fairly good sort of thing to take on board? Fake it till you make it? Is that a useful, uh, a useful thing? Well, I, I don't think that's something a brain surgeon can, uh, uh, can admit to, but there is probably some psychology underneath that that's excellent and fake it until you make it. And, the way I always thought about that was, and that's a common phrase here in the States, people will mention that is get started, try it, and get a lot of repetition under your belt until you learn that skill. That's how I always interpreted that was fake it, meaning train, learn, and then you may become an expert. And there's that book that says 10,000 hours, which I don't believe, but 10,000 hours will lead you to become an expert. Right. Um, what well, do you think? 10,000 so hours is too little or too much? Or it just depends I don't what think, I mean, if, if it was a, first of all, I don't know how you get to a singular or you get to a number like that, like 
at 9,900, you're not excellent. And at 10,100, <laughs> you are. But yeah, obviously. Yeah, that's but as I wrote in the book, we've, we've seen surgeons that have done 10,000 operations and they're not necessarily excellent or capable. And if we could all do something 10,000 times, then we could all be Olympians. But I think that does us, you know, it, it speaks to the value of repetition and training, but it, it does not, it does not allow room for talent and it does not allow room for who is better at acquiring skills through the training. Some people go through the motions and maybe that's fake until you make it. But to me, the training is every step. Am I a touch better than before? Did I add something to my repertoire? Is there something now in my quiver that I could use under a pressure situation? Like to me, that's faking it till you make it is jumping in and, and we used to, have, in, in the old days, uh, in the bad old days, we used to have this phrase about doing these bedside procedures, like starting an IV or something more dangerous, that see one, do one, teach one. So take a look at one and then <laughs> yeah, try yeah. it yourself. So that's your fake until you make it. And then get on with teaching somebody. Um, so all those things, I think, come back to you got to jump in. You have to train, and only then do you get to see if you really can make it. And that's where performance, pilots, athletes, ballerinas, musicians, it's a physical as well as intellectual and emotional performance. It is not, it, it, is, not, um, it, it is not just simply solving a math riddle if you're Einstein. It is sure. not, it, it, when you have physical performance included with thinking and judgment, to me, there's a higher level of, a, uh, of skill there, if you will. I'm not saying Einstein's not brilliant. I'm not saying Darwin is not fantastic. But when you physically have to perform, I think that adds a certain dimension that I find fascinating. All right. So let's, let's just supposing I had got to, I don't know, say ballet, dancing, and I, I got to a, a physical peak I choose ballet because my children do ballet dancing and it will make them laugh to imagine me doing ballet. Hey, but let's just suppose that's that, a good example, do. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic because it's physically very demanding and it's also mentally pretty challenging. Mm -hmm. Now, if I've got to what I consider to be, you know, my, my peak, my physical peak, and I've been training and, and working, could someone say a sports psychologist or a dance psychologist help me to make my body perform better through i don't know some analysis of my brain helping my brain because my body is controlled by my brain so could mm -hmm. someone talk me into doing it better yeah absolutely and I'll, and I'll show you why and i'll explain to you why because Although, you know, we think of the brain as this separate thing sitting on top, the, the brain body, the mind body connection is absolutely real. Uh, it, it's absolutely real because it keeps us breathing at night and a heart beating at night, and digestion going. So those things it does on its own. And that part of the, the brain's uh, reach, uh, the distribution of nerves that sprout from the brain into our body is called the autonomic or automatic nervous system. And then there's the other nervous system where I'm going to think and move my left arm and I'm going to think and move my right arm and I'm going to think and how to, you know, pound on a keyboard to learn music. And what I find with surgeons um, and what I've read about athletes 
is there's a flow where there's enough training. Of course, we're talking about people who are exquisite at their skill, have trained sure. endlessly, and now we're trying to figure out who can under pressure or when the spotlight is on demonstrate that performance and not let emotion and fear and anxiety and stage fright get in the way. That's really what we're talking about. And so those, those movements that seem easier to do in rehearsal, those notes easier to hit when nobody's watching, how do you deliver that under pressure? And that's what a sports psychologist would do is try to get yourself out of the way. And when I make that statement, I literally mean the brain has to shut down the frontal lobes. See, the frontal lobes behind our, 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 our monstrous foreheads compared to other animals are huge. And they're exquisite. They lead to creativity. They lead to faith, religion, music, art. They lead to all that's of the that. Difference. That's the difference between us and the animals, isn't it? I'm not sure, but that's, that's definitely a difference. Right. But they're also... They're, it's so, they're, so, they're so dominant that they can become, uh, they can fall into the rut of checking your emails and worrying about how people perceive you. And if I don't hit this, you know, maneuver right now, I won't make it onto the team. And so there's this weird dichotomy. It is, it is your most brilliant thing, but it is also the thing that can stifle and hinder you. And what athletes and certain surgeons say when they are moving with smoothness, with efficiency, with flow, is that they actually will either think about something else that's completely unrelated and let the training take over, or they will actually have, have practiced thinking about stressful situations when they were rehearsing. So it's, there's this whole dynamic in golf about like, make sure, make, make every shot uh, make every putt pretend it's the most important one that's going to make you a legend. So you're conditioning yourself to be uh, not so sensitive when that moment does arrive. When we look at brain scans about activity in the brain, it may surprise you that people who are experts and people who are performing well, their brains are less active. The frontal lobes have gotten out of the way. The instinctive brain plus all the training you're just letting yourself do what you're good at without you sort of falling over your own feet. That is what a sports psychologist says to you is, look, how do we get you to be your average? Because there's this book called Clutch where it says when you're a clutch and a performer under pressure, you're actually a clutch performer if you just do what you do when you're not under pressure. And so how do we get you to be what your training and rehearsing has demonstrated you can be? And that's where sports psychology comes in. It's very relevant in golf. It's very relevant in dance, in Olympics, for, for Olympians. And for what I would say in surgery, what I have seen is that the surgeons who end up thinking too much, maybe that's why some surgeons have music in the operating room. It's not a thinking game. Surgery is not a thought game. That they, the surgeons who have a complication um, and they get thrown off by it, in some ways, when they lose their nerve, they're less capable after. So the psychology of performing under pressure, maybe having a stumble, getting back to your A game, it, it is a true thing that I think um, can also apply to CEOs and other people and, 
and relationships. So I think there's a fascinating field of uh, the frontal lobes, the dominant CEO of our brain, goads you to, to be your best and then gets in the way when it's time to be your best. So yeah. it, it is a double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword because presumably the sports psychologist or whoever, he will give you some techniques so that when you're about to Correct. do the dance or whatever, you're not thinking, don't think, don't think. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> How can you put to that do, to right? one side? I don't know. What are the like techniques? For an act, like, for, well, like for an actor, right? Just be natural. <laughs> yes. Take, take one, be natural. So, I mean, there, there, presumably there's not just a, a, a simple solution to that. It's, it's kind of something you have to, have to practice. But um, Practice and it's individualized. So this is basically under cognitive therapy where every person's got different thing that makes them um, stumble. And that's where they get to know you. They go out in the field with you. They see certain habits um, and that they can guide you. They are an important part of, uh, of sports. Uh, and I don't believe it's just magic. I think there is real neuroscience under, underlying um, why you can benefit from that. Yeah, fascinating. Something which I think is probably slightly connected. I spoke to a, a ski jumper. In fact, it was Eddie the Eagle. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of Eddie the Eagle. He was, he won the gold limp, uh, the, uh, no, he didn't win. He entered the Olympics in Calgary. I think it was, uh, wow, how long ago? It was probably like 40 years ago. I can't remember the date, but he was a real hero because he, he did this ludicrously dangerous ski jump without hurting himself or without killing himself. And he, he was a Brit. And I, I spoke to him and he, he said that, he used the fear, you know, because there's a real chance of, you know, frankly, killing yourself doing this. He, mm. he used the fear to help him concentrate and really be completely singular in what he was doing and knowing that mm. he had to use that fear to just get his mind on the job of doing this jump successfully. But he also said, and this, this is what really fascinated me, he used to visualize himself doing the jump going through the whole thing you know sitting on the top and gaining speed and flying through the air and landing and everything but while he was doing that he actually had all the physical sensations of doing it you know his heart rate went up he got all sweaty mm. he got exhausted i mean well, two things really. How is that possible? And is going through a process like that really useful in your in your experience or in, in your knowledge? And not in my experience and knowledge. This is a great question. Uh, fantastic question, by the way. Somebody asked me the other day, before you make an incision, do you do like a practice air incision like golfers will? <laughs> and I said, no, it's you don't do a practice dance move if you're if you're in the ballet, right? You don't. You know, the quarterback under, uh, in American football the last few minutes, they're not doing a practice. But the, that, so that always caught me off guard with that. But the story about uh, envisioning yourself, mental imagery, I, I know that's there as an established sports psychology technique. The point I mentioned to you before about treating practice, simulating practice as if it were the real thing, is... Uh, it may seem like a simple strategy, but those who apply that the best have the physiologic stress responses of actually being 
in the moment. And that's what you're talking about with this, uh, with, with uh, the ski jumper is yeah. that he rehearsed and let himself get nervous, let himself get fearful, let his heart rate go up, let his frontal lobe say, what are you doing? Right. And then he did it enough times to where, for example, a simple example for us would be if we see a rubber snake, the first time we might jump, the second time we might jump. But after a while, the brain says, this is okay. This is okay. You've done this before. You've been here before. That's what that is, is first you have a physiologic response of stress. I am going to jump from 30 meters or whatever it is. And, you, and then you have all this frenetic response by the brain telling you to withdraw, abort, pull out. And over time, through the rehearsal, through true envisioning, through envisioning so much that you stir yourself up, then your frontal lobe says, you can get through this. I don't need to overreact to this. And those are the people who, when under pressure, they are more likely to fulfill and achieve what they can in rehearsal when, when things aren't um, at stake. Right. And that's exactly the point I wanted to make is how do you let the brain get used to being under pressure, uh, under the spotlight, before that moment actually arises. And that's what sports psychology is. That's where rehearsals, is, rehearsals are. That's what this kind of training is, uh, where you let yourself lo get lost in the moment. So when it's really there, it's, it's familiar to you and you don't have an exaggerated response by the frontal lobes freaking out. Right, right. So these, these are for things that are, I suppose, mainly we've been talking about, they're quite, they're quite physical in their nature, you know, sports and dancing or even surgery. Um, do you think this kind of technique could be used for other things that use creative parts of the brain? And I'm, you know, I'm talking about maybe people that do sculpture or painting or, or, um, or make music, you know, can people use mm. this for pretty much everything? That's, I love this. I mean, you know, you're going to run out of tape if I, if you, if you permit <laughs> me to fine. talk about That's this, fun. but, but so, so what really, what some would say is, uh, ballet, sport, uh, high level operating by somebody who's a maestro, uh, efficient, uh, seemingly the tissue doesn't even know you're there, can do it in one third the steps than somebody else. We're not just doing the same 5,000 steps faster. Some people are, are artists, they sculpt, they release the sculpture with less moves, with less chiseling. And those people, uh, I would I, I would say are are creative. They're creative with their their movement and the thought that releases the movement. So it's all creative. And yeah, I, I think okay. so. Right, I, yeah. I think so because we're not marching in line now. So again, the story is about the frontal lobe. It is both the seed of your creative genius as well as the prison. And you say, okay, that that's that seems that seems that seems bloated. But let's just let's just Let's just disassemble that a little bit um, because we, we not only do we all want to be more creative, more likely, but I, I, I believe that we can all be more creative. And I'll give you three or four wild examples um, one, of when we are, we're all wildly creative. The easiest one is sleep. The subconscious, when it has its way and we don't have to get on the tube and we don't have to get on the LA freeways and the, the checklist components of the frontal lobe are gone, there can be tremendous creativity in sleep. In fact, Salvador, uh, Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison 
used sleep or the transition to sleep to access more creative thoughts. Right. As children, and, and in sleep, your frontal lobes are, are less active. As children, when your frontal lobes are less developed, you're wildly more creative and curious. Let's take another example, third example. Some types of dementia where parts of the frontal lobe wither away. People in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, they have dramatic improvement. They don't become Michelangelo, but in their ability to paint. Isn't that bizarre? You damage the brain, or the brain is damaged. And some hidden latent uh, artistic abilities uh, manifest. Okay. And we know that with some, yeah, right? So that, I can show you publications for all of this. This isn't just, you know, like random website talks. These are, there are publications, academic publications on this. Let's take a fourth example. I have five for this. Four is um, um, microdosing. In Silicon Valley, people want to take acid or LSD. And what does that do? It gets the frontal lobe out of the way. It turns, uh, it turns the LA freeways and disassembles them into just small roads. So you're more likely to have unexpected connections. It's also not the way to get home if you have a checklist to fulfill. So th you know these these four examples um, are are incredibly important that show us that we can all be more creative and. How do we do that if we add sport and dance to that now and music? How do we do that without just bumping into walls and not finding our way home, right? That balance is what's disrupted. So for each artist, I believe there has to be time uh, that is protected where you are saying to yourself, I don't really need to be responsible right now. I am in a safe space. I'm in a creative space. I, I'm not going to check my phone. My emails are done. The kids are tucked in. I need, I need some space and time to let my brain run into recesses and corridors it's not familiar with. And so whether it's sport or this type of creativity, again, the frontal lobe uh, permits it, sprouts it. But if you become too much of a robotic person who's only uh, getting the things done for the day, or even after those are done, you're just looking at your phone and just scrolling at things coming at you, that's not going to allow for the looser connections that, that, that happen when you break these habits. And that's where people get these ideas about take a walk, and go out in nature, and do something that you haven't done before. Yeah. All of these are to permit permit new connections for happening. And the caveat here is you're not going to become a creative genius if you don't know the work in your field. You don't sit on your couch and solve physics riddles or paint something magical. You, you have to be your best. You have to learn everything, then step away from it and connect dots unexpectedly. Certainly, uh, I, the experience I have of that is, uh, so my, my wife is a scientist and uh, mm. she gets her best ideas when we've just come back from holiday. So I, I, have, mm. I have to badger her to go away on holiday to get some, uh, to get some good ideas. And I, and, and I, I'm, I'm she quite... should be badgering you. That's, she, this is work, honey. We have to, we have to yes, go on holiday. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm quite sure that's a familiar story. I, I, I bet lots of it people is. have experienced that. Yeah. It is. And, and for me, um, uh, I protect my Saturday and Sunday. Uh, two 90-minute, two two-hour sessions where I read 
I read things that are not from my discipline, um, whether it's in the newspapers or magazines typically, just to fill my brain with new things and new content. And then I find that that leads to, uh, you know, more fresh takes uh, uh, when I'm thinking about a scientific riddle or a surgical riddle, how to take something out. And just the last thing about how to har- harness that creativity without, you know, of course, brain damage and savant syndromes and, and taking LSD. The, the science of the 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes before you fall asleep, the transition from wakefulness to sleep, and on the other end, sleep to wakefulness, seems to be a window where you're partly awake and partly it's these borderlands are partly awake and partly in that wild area of dreaming and sleep where if you have put away your checklist and your phones, if you think about a puzzle or riddle, falling asleep, thinking about it, thinking about it when you wake up, maybe one way to access the natural creative solutions in your mind. Now you say, well, that sounds, yeah, prove that to me. That just sounds so over the top. Well, one, that's what Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison wrote about like 50 years ago and over 50 years ago. And then two, it's the only time where your brain waves, the, the, the flesh of the brain is electric, like an electric eel. You could detect the electricity sparking inside your skull with stickers on your scalp. They're called, that's called the EEG. And they have distinctive waves when you're awake or asleep. And they... That, that window, that borderland of falling asleep and, and, and then from sleep to wakefulness is the only time where you actually have both awake and asleep brainwaves happening concurrently. Okay. So there may, be some, there may be some neuroscience to where, you know, you're, you're thinking about a puzzle, but you're sort of, you got, you got one arm into the sleep landscape and one arm into the, uh, I, I want to have a breakthrough at my career landscape and. And maybe that's the way forward and it's not pharmacologic and you don't have to take a drug for it. So as of now, that's the best technique I've read about and it's the best technique I employ. I'm sure as a kid, when I was having dreams waking up, I tried to sort of prolong that time, whether I, I, have, I have kind of a distant yeah. memory of trying to prolong that time just because it was pleasant. <laughs> so Yeah. It depends on what you were working on, but yeah, you might, it seems like you had a nice childhood. I mean, some people want to wake up quickly from their dreams. Some people want to access their dreams. Um, I, I love the idea behind that because we're all wildly creative in our dreams and the subconscious, you know, when we're sleeping, the, the, the brain is firing on all cylinders. It's not a quiet time, but it's, it, it, and my marvel at what is going on when you're just lying around and it must be so important because you put your guard down and you know, in the Savannah and we're open to being attacked by a lion, let's say 10,000 years ago. So (laughs) he's got, it's gotta be important if you're, if you're checking yourself out uh, in a dangerous landscape like that. So it has some magical as well as physiologic and powerful role. Sleep. And if you don't sleep, you die. How long does it take for a human to die if they don't sleep? It's not long, isn't it? I don't think. Isn't yeah, it? I don't know, but it, it's less than a month, but it's definitely more than days. I know it's more than days because we stayed up days when we were um, in the old days. We used to t- stay up two days in a row to provide care. Is that, is that, is that when you started doing surgery? You, you, would, you would do surgery when you hadn't slept for a couple of days? <laughs> well, back then it was... Uh, I wasn't being um, serious, by the way. I'm not expecting you to say yes. <laughs> well, well, I was actually going to say yes. That's what you're <laughs> to you 
Well, in the States before 19, uh, I don't know, somewhere in the mid 1990s, we would do 40 hour shifts, go in Monday morning at 4 a.m., come home Tuesday night at 7 p.m. So, uh, yeah, I operated while not having slept for 30 hours often. Uh, Goodness. There were other people there, but we realized that was not healthy and we've moved away from that. Uh, it's been replaced with more doctors and more handoffs. So if you're extremely sick now that you have a lot more, uh, you know, they might be more bright eyed, if you will, but you're passing like a baton, the patient to more people. And in that, in that transfer, uh, some people think complications have actually gone up because, uh, in that transfer, the details are lost and the intuition of sitting with a patient or worrying about a patient in the ICU for 24 hours straight, you get to see some of their biorhythms and when they're losing altitude and gaining altitude, there's an instinct to that. That's hard to report at, uh, you know, at, uh, on the 12 hour mark to somebody else, uh, in yeah. just pure data form. But I digress. That, I mean, that is, that's fascinating. That could almost be the topic of, uh, of another discussion. <laughs> but as, as far as this discussion and kind of fake it to your, make it and moving on from that 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 was absolutely fascinating so um dr jandal thank you so much for chatting just before we finish please do just mention the name of your book and how people can get it yep happy to so in the states in the united states it's called neurofitness and uh in the uk and australia it's called life lessons from a brain surgeon excellent all right Dr. Jandal, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. Have a good day. Let's back UK. Run by my daddy. Driving can be a real chore for many people. There's the traffic, the pollution, the road rage, the bad manners, just the bad energy. And I'm not even talking about that. For many people, cars are just extremely uncomfortable and bring on bad backs and all sorts of aches and pains. Now, I'm actually quite tall, but I've got a long body and short legs. In fact, my wife calls me Low Bottom. It's a rather glamorous nickname. But it does mean when I sit in a car, quite often my head hits the roof and I have to kind of hunch down to look out the windscreen. But many other people have problems with bad backs, lower backs causes pain. And if, if someone's job is driving, you know, if they're a taxi driver or a truck driver, they just, you know, they need to live with pain or try and find another job. It's a real problem for a lot of people. Now, Dr. Graham Cox has an answer. And I started asking him, you know, just why are cars and driving so bad for many of our backs? Well, good morning, Mike, and uh, uh, thanks for inviting me on. Um, yes, cars are a bit of a perfect storm, actually, because um, although in, uh, in the workplace and at home, there are lots of very good ergonomic um, devices uh, to help posture, cars are the perfect storm of uh, everything that's bad for your back. Um, there's quite a lot of reports that have been sh that have shown that it's just about the worst thing we can do uh, to our backs, and it's it's really the combination of the, the 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 engine vibration, which isn't particularly helpful, the bumpy roads, um, steering, um, uh, moving shoulders backwards and forwards in a 
rather unnatural way, um, the offset pelvis because of the braking and accelerating that uh, your one leg seems to be slightly longer than the other, which puts your back out slightly, um, as, as well as the, uh, you know, the, the, the stresses of driving, uh, to you know, looking left and right, changing gear for those that have manual cars. So if you look at all of that together, um, it, it, it all lends to this perfect storm of, of uh, uh, yeah. ending up with muscular pain to your back. And that's without even dealing with the fool who's kind of right up behind you, lights flashing on the motorway at 80 miles an hour before, you know, before you've even dealt with the stress of that, like it's, it's yes. backed against you. Yes, and I mean, the, you know, heavy braking and accelerating can all add to that. And sometimes that's not, uh, that, that sometimes that's forced on us by uh, other, other people on, on the road to take evasive action. So, yeah, it's, it's all um, looking pretty grim for um, <laughs> people who suffer with bad backs who have, you know, trips, uh, long trips in cars. It does seem odd because I know car companies put loads of effort into, you know, miles per gallon, what their cars look like, you know, because you know they want to sell a car to us so it's got to look the biz you know it seems like they even put a lot of time and effort and money into cup holders but yet to drive them it's still a pain in the proverbial neck and a pain in the back it, it, it seems they could put more effort into making us comfortable well i don't think that i don't think it's lack of effort uh, mike i think it's just such a difficult uh, prioritization that they've got to put um, that, that are put in front of them Many ergonomists um, and uh, biomechanical engineers uh, are involved in the design of the of the car seats. Um, there's a couple of things I'd like to say. One, one is uh, that the priority is always for safety, um, right, and yeah. uh, to get the ratings, the Euro NCAP and NCAP ratings, they they do need to look at safety, which changes which sometimes compromises the posture, but also they're making a seat that has to really be uh, one, one size fits all, quite literally. Um, there are changes that you can make in the, in, the, in the seat, and the more expensive the car, the more changes there are. But by and large, um, it's one seat for everybody, and therefore there are going to be some that suffer and some that don't. Yes, yeah, so we've got this, this uh, sort of perfect storm, and uh, the, the situation of really one seat has to... Uh, at all quite literally so it's quite a problem but what what sort of brought you to try and do something about it you know what's your background what do you bring to the issue well my background is uh is really a a, a combination of my background has brought me to this place where uh, we'll have this um uh, this uh, solution to to the problem um i, I did a a, a um, a PhD in physiology um, and got into the neurophysiology side which is the, is the it's the function of nerves and spent many many years looking in the pain uh, arena uh, for, for a large company um, looking at devices and pharmaceuticals in terms of pain relief so that was very interesting for about five or six uh, years I was in, involved in that I also love track day um, driving and I've had uh, quite a few lessons on the track. Not got much better, I'm afraid, but... Um, okay, so are, you, are you a bit of a petrol head, kind of boy racer type at heart then? Well, I don't... I, don't, I think um, I, I think if you saw me on the track, you'd probably not change your mind. But um, <laughs> I, I, I do like to go round uh, the sanctioned courses with, uh, with an instructor, and I'm all ears listening to what they've got to say, and I always go round with an instructor. I've never... I think I've never gone round uh, on my own. I don't trust myself. But uh, and and that uh, whole art of uh, of driving, um, real thrill, 
And uh, while I was driving, um, you know, the, 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 uh, my own car, um, uh, it you know, makes you realise how much you shift around in the seat with the G-forces that are there on heavy braking and heavy, heavy acceleration and turning. So um, it was really a matter of that and bringing in the, the whole idea of a, a better posture, better uh, lowering back problems, sitting more comfortably, sitting better in the seat, ergonomically sitting in the seat as, as the seatbelts were designed and tested. So all of that came together and uh, just looking at the seatbelt, it seemed really pretty clear that the lap belt was doing the majority of the work um going across the pelvis and right. um and then going into it a little bit di- you know deeper investigating it uh, a little bit deeper it makes you realize that uh, about 90 percent of us drive with um slack in the seat belt which means that uh, our five star crash tested cars are little more than than two star um, if you've got more than an inch of slack in the lap belt, which is horrific and not many people know it, um, but uh, it's, it's, it's there for everyone to see. So when they strap in the crash test dummy to do the test and go ahead and slam the poor thing into a brick wall or whatever they do, the lap belt is done up really tightly in that situation. Is, is that pretty much it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the slack is removed. If you look at the NHTSA in the States or the ROSPA guidelines here, anywhere in the world, if you look and say how to buckle up, it always says remove the slack and slack should always be removed during driving. Um, and the only way you can do that practically is to hold the diagonal and, and keep tugging on it, which is obviously dangerous because you're driving one-handed. Um, so with the crash test dummies, um, they, they put them in the position, in the perfect posture, probably you've seen them on the, on the television or your listeners have, have, have seen them. Um, they sit upright, but they're very, very, uh, um, they behave very well and they don't twitch and fidget or turn around into the back seats and um, adjust the mirrors. They, they just sit there. So once the they slack... They children in the back that they've got to turn around and <laughs> leave each other alone and all the rest of it. Yes. They don't live in the real world, do they? It's no. a very, it's a very, <laughs> very laborious... <laughs> It's a classic laboratory situation, uh, Mike, where you, you pull the slack out of the seatbelt um, and then all the monitors for the uh, innards, for, for, the, for the internal organs and the muscles and the bones, all of those are set up and they're left. And then, of course, they, uh, within you know, a minute or so of setting it up, they then, as you say, slam them into the proverbial wall and, um, and then they take all the measurements. Um, so every seatbelt is tested as it, uh, as it was designed, which is the slack removed. Unfortunately, in the real world, we don't drive around like crash test dummies because we're humans and we move. And of course, the, the crash tests don't involve any bumps in the road, any turning, twisting, changing gear. It's just a straightforward, linear, um, very smooth uh, um, collision with a wall at 35 miles an hour. Right. So you have come up with um, a solution to this problem. So probably now is a good time to describe what what that solution is and what it looks like and, and how it works. Right. OK. Well, um, yes, there's, there's two, two things we've talked about. One, one is the is the safety side of sitting with the seatbelts in the optimal position. Another thing is the body sitting in the, the perfect posture. And um, I, I expect everybody listening to this is probably sitting upright as we speak, because whenever we talk about back problems, everybody sits upright. Yeah, um, I, I just made sure I just pulled myself yes. up. Yes, and at, you know, at school and at home, it was quite common for people to say, you know, sit up straight, and uh, everyone knows the right way to sit uh, up, but it's just so difficult to do. And in you know, in a car, it's even more uh, difficult because you've got gravity 
and all the vibrations and things we talked about earlier with the engine. So what uh, I decided to do was to look at the seatbelt tongue. Now the seatbelt tongue is the bit you grab um, every time you buckle up and buckle into the um, into just in, on, on the UK uh, roads down on the left hand side. You buckle in. So it's um, the bit you that, put in the clicky bit. The bit you put in the hole. That's it. That's yeah. exactly right. Yes. So that seatbelt tongue is a is a piece of plastic that's mass produced, and uh, just in just as an aside, when you look at the cars, if it's a Porsche, a Ferrari, um, a, um, um, a Suzuki, um, a, a Chrysler, whatever car it is. Um, those seatbelt tongues are pretty much the same across the board. So if you're in a, a million pound car or an entry level 7,000 pound car, they have the same seatbelt tongue, which is, you know, from a marketing background, that sort of just seems wrong that you're actually handling something which is so basic and, 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 uh, and cheap. Um, and so looking at that, um, thinking that's the pivot which holds the lap belt, and so by resisting the slack creeping into the lap belt, um, if you sit in your car and pull on the diagonal, you can actually sit in a lovely posture, but of course it slackens off as you move around. So it was really the, the, the whole effort, uh, Mike, was to try and get something that resists that slack. So we came up with a, a small deformable, deformable device that really easily, because it had to be easy to fit on, um, that has a little bit like a, a brake pad that you get on a bicycle, um, that as you pull it, it engages with the seatbelt um, across the lap. Um, and as, you, as you said, that bit of the seatbelt's the same whether you're driving a Porsche or a, or a cheap car. So if you can sort of come up with something that works on that bit, it'll work for all cars. Yes, I mean, I think that um, with varying degrees of success, I mean, there are a lot of variables when you look at a, at a car, which we looked at, where you've got the stalk, which is how far the buckle sits up proud of the driver. If you're a very thin, very small driver, sometimes the, the stalk sits up so high that it can't bend over. So even when you've got a, a seatbelt without a shaft attached, um, it's very dangerous because you've got this massive great gap between your pelvis and the, and the, yeah, and the yeah. lap belt. So um, the reason that's dangerous, you, you just slide underneath it. Yes, I mean, I think you know, looking looking at the, uh, the the danger side of things, if you put about two inches of slack in the seatbelt and run the uh, crash tests, um, the, the the effects and the results on the crash test dummy are absolutely horrific. I mean, you've got internal bleeding, spleen breakages. Um, you know, you've got the, a big, a lot of veins in there which just bleed out. So, um, it, it, at, high, at very, very slow um, um, d um, speeds, um, you can get internal bruising, um, which are quite nasty. But obviously, at higher speeds, and we're only talking about 60 miles an hour, which is two cars going 30, um, then you know, b bad things happen. So that was really the, there was a there was a desire to save people's lives and also to uh, make, get their quality of life higher for a better posture and less back problems yeah okay so sorry I, I kind of interrupted you there so back on with just describing exactly what this gizmo is that you've um come up with it, it yeah so go ahead yes it's, it's a small deformable device which is it's made of an elastomer which is a similar product to the um the the material that runs around the uh, the windows of cars, the soft stuff that gives that nice seal. So it's uh, it's quite a tactile material. Um, we looked at lots of different uh, blends and combinations, and we came up with a winning solution. It it fits into your hand. It fits onto the seatbelt tongue in two seconds, um, 
and uh, once it's fitted it just stays on the seat belt and the great thing about it is that w whether you're a child in a booster seat or a, uh, or a driver or a passenger um, the shaft basically is a passive uh, part of the car which when you buckle up it just activates and, and makes it a, a, um, a lot uh, uh, more ergonomic for, for the person to sit in without you having to do anything. There's nothing the driver or passenger needs to do any extra once it's fitted on. Right. No, I, no, I, I can concur with that. So in a previous car, I, I tried one out and uh, I, I found exactly that. It was very easy to fix on, very easy to use. Um, and I, 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 I liked it. I, I think it made my driving more comfortable. But in my mm. current car, actually, the thing doesn't fit on the tongue. Of yes. What? So t tell me a bit about that. I can't use it in my car. Yeah, there are variants. Uh, it's good, good that you mentioned that. There are variants of uh, seatbelt tongues. There's about three or four major world manufacturers of seatbelt tongues. And because they're all tested in individually, uh, sorry, the, 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 the design of them is tested, um, they all pass the uh, rigorous um, safety tests. Therefore, the car companies can actually swap and change as they wish. So if you were to buy a, um, you know, a, a Vauxhall, um, uh, what particular brand, a Corsa, say, um, you may buy one six months later and it's got a different seatbelt tongue and you would never know unless you were looking. So there are some variants in the seatbelt tongue shape. Um, and we, we believe from selling uh, Shoft and having very, very few returns, we believe it's up in the sort of 95% uh, of seatbelts it fits and 5% it doesn't. So you were right. a bit unfortunate in your... In, in your <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. Well, then hopefully it will fit my next car. Um, so let me ask you, you, you've designed this and developed this. Is there sort of any published research on the, the use of the shaft and sort of how and why it works? Mm. Um, another great question because, um, uh, doing sort of classic clinical trials, you know, um, very, very strict research, uh, it's quite difficult to do that because if we go back to just the crash test, if you put the shaft on the uh, on the crash test dummy, the slack's already been taken out. So the difference um, we found when we did that is absolutely minimal because you're in the perfect posture anyway. Um, the reality comes in when you're in the real world. And so our real world evidence is um, back specialists who absolutely love the product, who are um, who are prescribing it in inverted commas to their to their patients, um, and uh, many many people, um, tens maybe even a hundred people have written in saying uh, how good the product was uh, on on the reducing back problems in their back. In terms of literature, um, getting something written up, we are looking actually at uh, trying to. Uh, get um, you know this would be a perfect product for a PhD or an MSc for a for a nurse or any anybody that's in the physiology or the ergonomics world um, uh, or physiotherapy probably as well um, in terms of doing a test because it's you know it's a great tool to be able to do tests in and, yeah. and do with, uh, uh, experiments with back posture. Um, which yeah. Well, if if anyone's listening and fancies a PhD in the world of car ergonomics. Get in touch. You can do that via my blog. And, and it's a very practical um, uh, thing. It's not just an academic uh, exercise. I mean, the implications of that are, are quite uh, far-reaching. But, uh, yeah, we, 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 we haven't got uh, large published uh, clinical trials. They all cost money and, and design. And as I say, that the fundamentals are that um, you, you would 
you'd have to do many tens of thousands of, of, of drivers to look at um, the, 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 the wide range of, of driving statistics uh, of how, how people drive. It's all very individual to try and close down on just the shoff being the, the, the difference. But anecdotally, um, certainly we sell most of our shoffs through word of mouth when they buy a pack and then they buy a couple more and tell people about them. So that's always good for us. And we do a money back uh, guarantee and we've, we've never had to um, give anyone their money back. People have always said in your situation where they've had a car that it doesn't fit, they've already put it onto their second car or they've given it to a friend and they've, they've been very grateful. So we're, we're so far, we've been very, uh, uh, very encouraged. Yeah, well, certainly it worked for me. Are there any sort of famous racing drivers or rally drivers that people have heard of that use one, you know? Well, we know that um, <clears throat> the Stig used, um, uh, that's Ben Collins on, on uh, Top Gear. He used them for many years. Um, unfortunately, Top Gear and the BBC were, clipped all of the uh, shots um, showing um, uh, down by the seatbelt buckle. Um, I'm and sure, yeah, the BBC can't advertise, yeah. Yes, although uh, although Clarkson does uh, sometimes, uh, I'm not quite sure how. But uh, yeah, so th th well, that was used. We, well, we also he's a bit um, of a law unto himself, isn't he? Really, so. <laughs> he is. He is, and I'm not sure if I'd like him to test a shot because if he's in a bad mood, he might just throw it in the bin. <laughs> he's a yes. bit of a loose cannon, but I think yeah. um, someone else that is less of a loose cannon is Tiff Nadell, who used to do Top Gear as a TV presenter um, for the older generation. They'll remember him on Top Gear, and also he does a lot of the live. Top Gear, um, and um, he um, <coughs> he runs uh, a business down in Thruxton uh, where he takes people mostly sideways round in his uh, his BMW. Sideways? Um, what at speed? You mean skidding? Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> he, he, he loved, you know, it's it's a and he loves driving. He's a lovely fella, and he's had a he's had a uh, he's had a shaft in his. Uh, sorry about that. I'll just say that again. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so that was an order coming in, Graham. Yes, so yeah, Tiffany Dale down in Thruxton, he, he takes people um, largely sideways around the track at Thruxton and he's had a uh, shaft in his car for about 18 months uh, uh, and absolutely loves them and uh, there's a, his testimonials on our, on our website and on our Facebook uh, page but wow. he absolutely loves them but uh, um, we, we don't know how many other um, dri you know, famous drivers are, are using them but uh, we're always happy to hear good feedback from, uh, and bad from, from everybody. Yes, all right. Well, let's ask, uh, ask again, if, not only if you want to do a PhD on ergonomics, but if you're a famous racing driver and you're using a shop, <laughs> get in touch. So one yeah. final question, which might be a bit unfair, actually, but, you know, things are moving fast in the, in the world of cars. And everyone's talking about driverless cars. So is that going to kind of change how we strap ourselves into cars? Is there a next generation of shoft with driverless cars? Well, I think that the whether you're driving or a passenger, it's irrelevant really. Shoft is all about sitting in the perfect posture in the in the car, with the 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 the, um, the spine being um, uh, aligned um, and and supported by the seat back. So if you're sitting with your back against the seat, then you've got support and your your muscles don't go into spasm. You don't get that usual mechanical um, back strain. Um, <clears throat> whether you're driving or not is is really sort of irrelevant. And in fact, Shoft is very good for um, children in booster seats and they're not driving. So any, anybody that's in the car um, uh, gets a benefit, we'll benefit. Yeah. From, from Shoft. And with the you know with uh, with the all the new um, inventions that are coming along. I mean, pretensioners is one of the uh, areas where 
uh, I get asked a lot about whether Shoff works with pretensions, and of course, yes, we've tested it with pretensioning devices. And some of these devices in the, in the very expensive cars, um, they actually, as you brake and as you um, change the features of the car, um, the lap belt uh, tightens up. Um, now that that's um, that's a very expensive feature and it has a lot of uh, technology involved in it. The problem is that if you're out of position, it doesn't matter what the technology does to pull you back into position. It, it can't happen. Uh, it's all happens too late. So the best thing to do is prevention. Uh, and so Shoft actually keeps you in the right position, so you're not ever out of position. So you don't need any um, any device to pull you back into your seat in in, in a uh, a near miss, a collision, or or braking hard. Yeah. Okay. No, that uh, that all sounds fantastically sensible. Um, and if people are listening and they want to find out a little more or even buy some, um, I'm going to put a link on my blog. You will be able to get them on my website as well, relaxbackuk.com. So, um, yeah, please do have a look at that. I'll, I'll make sure there's a, a video, some photos, so you can see what the thing looks like. So, uh, Graham, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Re really uh, interesting and and useful for, well, probably thousands of people. Well, thanks, Mike, and thanks for spreading the word as well. I think everyone that's bought one pretty much has been delighted with it, and um, I think that you'll be doing your, uh, your listeners uh, a great service because if they do try one, they'll love it, and um, that will all be good for everybody in terms of um, uh, driving with a better posture and uh, not so many back problems causing the NHS to... Um, to the extra strain of back problems is, is so big it's, um, it's about, I think it's about 1.3 million a day wasted uh, by the NHS on back problems so anything we can do to help it's uh, good for everybody yeah good all right thank you very much indeed Graham thanks Mike and please do remember if you'd like to buy a shaft go to my website which is relaxbackuk.com there's a video there that shows a little bit more how they work what they look like and also the opportunity to to buy one Thank you to my guests on this week's show. They were neurosurgeon Dr. Rahul Jandial and Shoft inventor Dr. George Cox. And of course, thank you to you for listening. That was Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.